Hi, I'm your host, Kimberly Thomas-Tigg, and you're listening to Signalize, a Dazzle for Rare podcast. Whether you're a patient, advocate, caregiver, or a clinician, Signalize is your source for good news, personal stories, events, and the things that Rare and Associated Communities care about. Follow Signalize and Dazzle for Rare at D-A-Z-Z-L-E, the number four, R-A-R-E, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we'll post episode links, updates, and more. It's autumn, and you know what that means? The Cambridge Rare Disease Network will be hosting its annual Rare Fest 2022. Engage, educate, and empower. The Rare Fest 2022 will be taking place in person this year. Uh, The Cambridge Guild Hall is the venue of choice this year, and the event will be happening across two days on the 25th and the 26th of November 2022. Rare Fest is a public-facing, two-day rare disease-inspired festival. It features interactive exhibits, talks, film, and art, showcasing the groundbreaking science, visionary technology, and pioneering organizations, all improving lives and bringing hope to those affected by rare conditions. You can still book your tickets today by going to camerdisease.org slash rarefest22. There is an orange book tickets button at the top of the screen. Just go ahead and click on that, and it'll take you to where you can book your tickets now. Today, we're happy to be joined by Lee from NCBRS Foundation. We'll be dropping all the relevant links to NCBRS Foundation and their website in the description for this podcast. Thank you for inviting me over to do this. I'm I'm very excited. I'm excited to have you just to share with our audience for the first time you joined Dazzle Fair this summer. And so that was the the first interaction that we had. And Mm -hmm. as others have said, you absolutely smashed it. Like you just did an amazing job and just the engagement and the excitement, it gives me chills. I'm really, really happy. So I'm really glad that you're joining us today. So uh, what I want to start with is I think a lot of us may not know what NCBRS is. So if you could tell us what it stands for and also how you got involved in the community. NCBRS stands for Nicolaidus Barretsta Syndrome. Um, I'll give a little quick overview on that. So it's a rare genetic syndrome. Um, There is currently fewer than 270 confirmed cases around the world that are known to us as the foundation, although there's still under 100 described in literature. Um, So how I got involved, my son was born in 2006 and straight away we knew something was different. He he wasn't like our our previous son. Um, So anyway, our local hospital started doing loads of genetic testing. They tested for Williams syndrome and various others. Everything come back negative. Um, So then they referred him to Great Ormond Street. That was in early 2007. Um, He was seen by metabolics at Great Ormond Street. Um, loads of loads of departments um, they still couldn't find nothing um, so in November 2007 he was actually sent up to Gosh for five days for intensive testing and it, it, it was just by chance that two geneticists who were in the who were working in Gosh so one is from Portugal and one is from the Netherlands they just happened to come across my son and were like wow he fits the description of this very rare syndrome so anyway all the testing was done we got sent home and we got a phone call one afternoon in December 2007 and they asked us to go back up there the next day so obviously me and my wife were thinking wow like they must have found something so we went up there the next day with our son and um 
they told us Callum had NCBRS, um, but he was only diagnosed by clinical features at this point because they still hadn't found the cause of the syndrome and the gene affected. So it was literally just done on facial features and symptoms and things like that. Um, so yeah, so obviously I was a young dad at that time as well. I was only 19 when my son was born. So at this point I was only just around her turning 21 when we got this diagnosis myself. So yeah, we obviously walked out of Gosh and we were just like, wow, like, what is this condition? Like, we we don't know. So obviously, as a lot of people do, and you shouldn't really, but you get onto Google and you try and start searching the information and there was nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, and at this point, my son was actually the seventh child to be diagnosed clinically in the whole world. Um, that's what we was told at Gosh. So anyway, um, a couple of years passed and obviously my wife um, and myself were on the internet trying to search for more stuff. Um, and she come across a post, I think it was a mum's net, because this was a long time ago now. Um, and it was basically another lady from up north in the UK. Um, and she said that her son had the same condition. Um, so we ended up actually meeting in person in 2009. Um, that was the first time we'd ever met another person. And we walked in and, and they just looked like twins. So you knew that they had the same condition. Um, and again, fast forward a few more months, my wife found another post. I think it was a Make-A-Wish charity that they had um, give a grant to another child who had the condition. So obviously we had got in contact with Make-A-Wish, they put us in contact with the family. So we met another family again in 2009 in the UK. Um, so as far as we knew at that point, there was only three of us in the UK. Um, so obviously for me, I felt alone and isolated. Not even the professionals knew anything about this condition. So like you'd go to the GP, you'd go to physio or your local hospital and they would know nothing. So it really inspired me to start a support group so no one else faced this journey alone. Because I, I, I've, again, being 21 and getting that diagnosis, walking out of that hospital, it was just so isolating and I didn't want other people to feel alone like we did. So anyway, I, I kept in contact with all the researchers from Great Ormond Street and who diagnosed him, and they started to put us in contact with other families around Europe as well. Um, so in 2010, we actually held our first ever UK support group meeting. Um, it was three families that I've already said about, and then we had three from around Europe. So there was, I think, one from the Netherlands, one from Italy, and I'm almost sure it was one from Spain as well. So that was the first time that we'd ever like been in a big group. So it was just six families. We had the two doctors, researchers from Great Ormond Street there as well. So they would give like a presentation on, on, on the syndrome, talk to us all in individually and everything like that. And and that actually continued right up until 2018. We'd had a meeting every year in the UK. Um, and in our last meeting, we actually grew to 26 fam families. Um, and they were from all around the world, Canada, USA, 
everywhere. That is quite a journey. Yeah, so from going from not really being sure how many other children may also be affected to going to like three in the UK mm-hmm. to going to 20 families internationally and being to being able to meet in person. Mm-hmm. I think a, a lot of other organizations might hear this and go, wow, one, that's really amazing. But two, that having a sense of community and other families like I think we all kind of crave that is like mm-hmm. human beings. Like we want to know that we're not alone and that other people are going through similar ups and downs. And it's also great to see, I think from a parent's perspective, see other children and how they're getting along and what, you know, your child's trajectory might look like, what the future might Absolutely. look like for them as well. That is Oh, I always get the chills. Like, I love that. I love everybody being able to meet and doing it until 2018. That is a lot of in-person. That's so much for the kids. How did the kids react to being able to meet other children who have the same condition? It's very strange. Like, it's just like they clicked. They got on straight away. They were all playing, playing. And we had the siblings there as well. So siblings were talking to each other and everything. It It was very emotional as well um very emotional um and definitely on that first meeting you got that sense of oh, i'm not alone anymore oh, i've got people who are going through the same thing as me and as you said that trajectory i can sort of see now there's a lot more diagnosed i i can see sort of where my son's going to be in the future as well um so yeah it's, it's very important speaking of your son how how is your son doing right now yeah, so he, he's he's great. So he has the diagnosis of NCBRS. He's also diagnosed with ADHD, scoliosis, sleep onset difficulties. He doesn't like to sleep at all. Um, and enuritis, so he's still in nappies at night time. He does attend a special needs school, um, but he, he seems to be doing very well. Um, he still can't write his name and, um, you know, um, things like that, and he can't read or, or, or write at all. But on the other aspects of life, he, he's doing brilliantly. One thing I noticed from the website is you mentioned the sort of personalities of the people affected oh, by brilliant. NCBRS. And, and you said they all have really lovely personalities. They do. That, that is, it's interesting because I don't think we talk about that aspect. You mentioned morphology or the clinical diagnosis based on physical features. And we still see that happening in a lot of countries where access to genetic testing is just not available. But I think another thing we don't talk about is some conditions do have, yes, physical characteristics, but also have other characteristics that are harder to explain, like personality. Um, I want to say it's Williams syndrome, but I'm sure someone will correct me where the children have pitch-perfect voices. And I was in the hospital the other week and heard a little boy who was struggling, I think, with his uh, coordination, but he burst into song, and he had the most angelic voice I've ever heard in my life. I nearly burst into tears. And I turned and I said to him and his sister, that is so beautiful. You have a fantastic voice. Like, keep, keep going. You sound amazing. And the smile, he didn't quite catch, I don't think he was quite looking at me and was kind of distracted, but his sister was like, she was so proud of her brother. And it's like, those are some of the gifts that I don't think we anticipate when people have genetic diagnoses. We don't necessarily look at how beautiful some of these traits are. So I would love to hear more about some of the personality traits of the children with NCBRS. They are just lovely children. They are so loving. Don't get me wrong, you know, everybody has their moments, but overall they are just so loving. They're warm, they're inviting. 
on a personal level, my son, he's very caring. So just say like his sister would fall over or trip. He'd be the first one there to see if she's okay and pick her up and go and get her a wet wipe or something to clean, clean it. He's a very caring boy. Um, we had a dog, sadly passed away last year after 13 years, but it was like his best friend. Um, it was literally like his best friend. He he would go everywhere with him. He would walk him, feed him, water him, give him treats. They are just so caring and loving children. That's interesting. Um, I'm thinking about the, the, the trait of being warm and caring. And I think about pets. Do you feel like pets are something that's really important to children with this condition? Do a lot of the families have pets? Do they have any role for pets in terms of maybe helping the children with things generally, but also as being like emotional support? Off the top of my head, we don't have families that have service dogs, therapeutic dogs. They're just the family pets, and I just think that they get really attached to to them as well. That's really sweet. Oh, yeah, I love a good dog story. Like, we had a dog as well, and unfortunately, he also passed about a year ago. So, you know, furry furry parent love there. And the um, emotion behind that as well. Like, when, when our dog did pass, he had so much emotion. So they have that emotional side as well. I love that too. I think one conversation I was having with a gentleman the other day was the struggles that men may have in talking about their emotions and mental health. And I think sometimes with genetic conditions, having so many differences, we're all so unique. When there are components that affect our personality, such as causing some people to be more empathetic or more compassionate, I think the rest of the world who isn't, who doesn't think they're affected by rare disease could look at the beautiful personalities of all the people in our communities and really learn a lot about how to be caring, how to be compassionate, how to take care of the world around them. That's one reason for starting the podcast as well is I think sometimes we often focus on how emotionally draining rare diseases can be or how hard it can be to find community, to find information, to find a clinic to find specialists. And we don't always focus on the amazing people who are affected by these conditions, the amazing personality traits, the amazing caring and empathy, the joy that they bring the people around them, the investments that they make with their time. You know, maybe they're not able to work, but maybe they volunteer and work with other people with their condition. Maybe mm. they spend time with other patients. There's so much that human beings in general are capable of. And so talking about those things, I think is something we don't get to do enough. And mm. so it is so uplifting to, to hear these wonderful stories and to hear about children and their engagement with animals or their engagement with one another, that clicking, that having a, just a sudden sense of community. Sometimes I wish that all human beings could have that sudden click where we yeah. all just love each other and get along. And so that's what the children are giving to each other is a precious gift. And that in itself makes me emotional as a human mm -hmm. being and as a parent. I think that's, yeah. oh, it's amazing to hear. Yesterday yeah. I actually got like um, a message from the school. We get a daily message and they said that actually one of his friends had got hurt in school and he was the one to take her out of the classroom to a quiet space to calm down. That is so sweet. And I actually got a bit emotional when I read that as well and I just thought, you know what, that is just lovely. It's brilliant. Our children generally teach us how to be better people. Absolutely. And I think when, when our children sometimes may have special needs, my son is on the autism spectrum and he's got some other things going on as well. He is also incredibly sweet, incredibly loving. He is the first kid in class to rush up and pick someone up and give them a mm -hmm. hug and 
and just, you know, come to the rescue. Like, can I get you a plaster? You know, let me get you some ice. We see that and we should be taking that with us everywhere we go, that our children can help hold us to account to be better people ourselves, to be the person who, who doesn't just like look away, who says, you know what, if I can help and it's helpful, I'm here for you. If you've got this, I'll step back, but I'm always I'm always available for support. So kids are amazing. I love kids. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So we've learned a bit about the condition and we've talked a bit about your son and we've talked about the children. So when did the time come for you when it was more than just a support group or more than a support forum that you needed to actually incorporate and become a foundation? I'm gonna rewind a little bit to our 2015 meeting. And that was the first time we had a lady come over from Canada with her son who was diagnosed with the condition. Um, And again, me and her just sort of clicked. Our boys clicked straight away as well. And it ended up just being a continuous friendship. Obviously, she's in Canada. There's a five-hour time difference between us. Um, And and we'd we'd always keep in contact. So anyway, after that 2015 meeting, we kept in contact. And we just felt it was so important to get a website going for the families. Because at that point, we had no website for this condition specifically. So between us, we created the first ever NCBRS website. It was all like within input from the two geneticists as well um so yeah so we launched that in 2015 obviously we continue to have our meetings until 2018 helen i'm going to say helen who come over from from canada she actually organized um the first ever meeting in toronto as well so we did have a meeting in toronto in 2017 that was at sick kids hospital in actual toronto so they they actually put that all on for like the north american families and everything unfortunately i couldn't go to that because of other prior commitments here but um yeah so she done that and then during so it, it just continued so after the 2018 meeting it was more about getting the website more up to date getting more information put on there, uh, patient stories put on there because we find they are very valuable um and then obviously sort of covid sort of hit um you know it sort of come out in the february and in march 2020 that is when we were just like constantly on zoom having chat and we just like we want to take this further like we want this to be big we want to be the number one support group for this condition um so we actually done a lot of work over zoom in during the covid the first lockdowns and everything um uh, working with the uh, with the charity commission and everything and in august 2020 we become the NCBRS Worldwide Foundation. Um, so it was a lot of work throughout COVID and obviously the time differences and everything. But yeah, so we actually become an established foundation in August 2020. How did you find that experience? Because, you know, I know from working in the nonprofit sector before, like there's a, I worked, I did it in America, obviously I I am American, but, um, you know, it's confusing in the United States. When I came here and started looking at incorporating as a charity or a nonprofit, there are so many different types in the UK, whereas in America, there's basically one type. Mm -hmm. And here, there's like more than I can count. So 
when I've talked to other folks in the UK who are thinking of incorporating and starting some sort of charitable organization, they find it kind of overwhelming. So how did you find that process? And it, was there any logistical difficulties from the UK to Canada? Like, is the Canadian part of it also connected how does that work, I guess? We are an established charity in the UK, so we're based in the UK, so we are only registered with the UK Charity Commission. Um, but obviously, Helen from Canada was a trustee. She was the co-founder as well. Um, that was very easy. I, I've got to say the Charity Commission are excellent. They are so great for support. Um, when we first applied, there was a few little things that we had to change and that th they told us what we had to do. I could ring them if I needed to. So logistics side was very easy, in my opinion. Um, Charity Commission, very helpful. Um, and it literally took us three, four months to get established from the beginning. Wow, that that in itself is really is interesting to hear because I talk to a lot of people who have different sort of ups and downs with this. But mm. one thing when I was talking to Sam Fillingham of PIP UK is she also sort of mentioned that, you know, sometimes you've just got to give it a go. Yeah. So even if it seems daunting, even if it seems like, what are the unknown factors? How much time do I need to put into this? Do I have to put in my own money? How do I do this? But she was saying that um, there are lots of organizations in the UK who are there yep. to support and can really help you get off the ground. So that's what I'm hearing here as well. Yeah. Were there any other, besides the uh, Charity Commission, were there any other groups that really helped you get through paperwork or help support with funding or anything like that? I sort of had a connection to a solicitor of going way back anyway, um, and they just sort of advised us. Like, I'll be honest, my background is retail management, so uh, this is me new into the charity sector. Um, I just found it very easy, very easy. No challenges apart from the few little bits we had to change with the uh, charity commission. Um, we we literally had a few little bits of advice from a solicitor. That was it. And we done it our, ourselves. Right. So out of the different types of charities, um, because I know that there are some that have the ability to sell like merchandise to mm -hmm. raise funds, and but they can't benefit from, I think, public funding, mm -hmm. if, I, if I recall that correctly. So what... How is your charity set up and what sort of things are you able to do in terms of fundraising? And is there anything you can't do in terms of fundraising or doing things like selling merchandise and things like that? We are set up as a CIO charity, so a charitable incorporated organization, sorry. Um, yeah, and that was advised to us by my solicitor friend and the charity commission as well for what we wanted to do. Um, so what we do is education support awareness um, we do provide small grants to our families to help with cost of things that like their organizations or local authorities won't provide funding for so we will provide small grants to our families um, we are also looking to fund research going forward as well um, Yes, so that's so we were advised because of what we wanted to do. That was the way to set up so we can fundraise. Um, I don't think we've got many restrictions to what we can do in fundraising. If I'm not the legal side of this, obviously I would go to the chair of trustees for that advice. Um, but yeah, as far as I'm aware, we don't have no big boundaries to fundraising. 
Like so, we we didn't accept donations. We just started our annual five k walk at the beginning of of this week to fundraise as well. And yeah, so again, I, for what we're doing at the moment, there are no barriers. That's amazing, and I think folks that are listening will probably hear that and hopefully maybe draw some inspiration from that, and and maybe today make the decision to just give it a go. Just ask because there are so many folks who are here to help. As Sam said on your previous, um, there are a lot of organisations out there that will help you as well. Um, I think I think for me it was just where I was at home and I just had that passion because obviously my son's got this condition so he was isolating at home for 14 months, he didn't go to school. Um, so I, I did have time on my hands <laughs> pretty much. So um, yeah, I, I just cracked on, got it done with my co-founder as I call Helen um, and we got it done. That's amazing. I love it. So one of the takeaways I think we can say is just give it a go. Give it a go. There are people there who want to support you. So we've kind of talked about sort of where you've come from the beginning of everything. So now you have a patient registry. Um, Mm -hmm. I did look at the website, as I said, and it's amazing if I may tell you that. Um, I used to do websites and things like that in the past myself. So I was like, this has got patient narratives, which I love. There is a lot of information. Um, And your social media is on fire. So you're doing super good with that, in my opinion. Just saying. Thank you. So what's some other good news about the patient registry? Uh, Are there any other things that people, you know, if we have any families who are listening, who are affected by NCBRS, what might they need to know? Definitely join the patient registry. That is that is one of my big things. Um, I will say that I believe we've done pretty well with our patient registry. Um, obviously, there is a bit of a language barrier sometimes because we are spread out across the whole world. Um, it's not just in the UK. We support families around the whole world. And our patient registry is global as well. Um, so there sometimes is a language barrier, but we are just just under 100 participants. We're about 40% of our families registered around the world on it. So we are getting a good set of data coming through now, which is all going to help with research. That is one of our main goals is research going forward. That is amazing. And I know, again, research is oftentimes for organizations like the main goal. And it can be daunting because I think people wonder, where do I start in terms of research? Who do I connect with? And that might be a larger conversation for another time. So let's keep that in the back of our heads. But in terms of the registry, the thing I know a lot of people might be thinking is... Sometimes with genetic conditions, it can be difficult to get people to join registries or it can be difficult to demonstrate why it's important to have a registry. So how do you overcome that barrier? I mean, 40% is, is to me, sounds like a pretty good number. It is, yeah. is that in reality a great number? And also, how did you even get to 40%? Because people do tend to have concerns about how their data is used, things like that. Don't get me wrong, it was a bit of a long long process from the beginning. There was a few that joined in the very beginning, it sort of went slow and then it really picked up and then we got loads in. So we actually done, I called it a, because our patient registry is in collaboration with Cords. So they're the coordination of rare diseases at Stanford 
in the USA. So we're in collaboration with them doing our patient registry. Uh, so we done a, a cords drive um, in May, and it was a May the cords be with you. That was our, our, our title, and we literally just posted it in all of our groups. We done our emails to our parents because we do have a private family group as well where all of our families are in so they can communicate with each other around the world learn from each other's experiences and everything um, so yeah it was just about pushing it and pushing and pushing and pushing and it seems to be working <laughs> well that's a great way to do it and i think that's one of those things that you can't kind of just do it halfway you can't say well we'll post about it here and there i think some people worry that if they over post in their groups or they over post on social media that people will get like fatigued and they'll say like right i'm sick of seeing this but actually i think the more people see it they might scroll past it a few times and then they see it again and it starts to stick and then they see it again and go okay well now i'm going to look into this so it is important to continue to kind of find fresh ways to present that information but to tell people it's important like for research if we want to find like you mentioned before that the sort of physical clinical diagnosis was all you could get in the beginning. Now with genetic testing, it's come a long way. And it looks like I look, I saw on the website that the gene, there's a gene variant for SMARCA2. I would never be able to say that off the top of my head if I didn't make a note. Do you want me to actually pronounce it? (laughs) Oh my God. Yes, I do. Please. Yes. So it is called the SMARCA2 gene which is located on chromosome nine. Wow, that, that, okay, SMARCA2. Um, I find it kind of funny anecdotally because I worked in genetic testing for the last year or so, but I work more in an administrative and marketing capacity, so I'm not a geneticist. But um, we come across genes like LARC2 and, um, oh gosh, I'm trying to think of the gene for uh, Dravet syndrome, which causes epilepsy. Can't remember that one, but there's so many. And I love when people like are able to make them a a pronounceable word (laughs) (laughs) instead of trying to remember S-M-A-R-C-A-2. SMARCA2. I got that one. I can do that. (laughs) So when was that gene linked to the condition? And do we have any more information now from the time it was identified to currently? What do we know about it? The gene was actually found in 2012. So it was three, four years after my son was diagnosed and my son was actually part of the initial research to find the gene as well. So it was found in 2012 and there was a lot of research done all around the world, doctors collaborating on this research to to get this distinctive syndrome because obviously it was just, and in the beginning it was actually MBS but there's another condition who uses that acronym. So we had to change ours to NCBRS. Um, so yeah, um, it was identified in 2012 as a distinct condition, but there used to be overlap with coffin Cyrus syndrome as well. But obviously now it is a distinct condition. They can tell the difference between the two. Interesting. I'm mm. always interested in that because again, coming from like where I work, it's something that we're starting to get more and more information. We're starting to get patients more and more engaged in understanding why things like whole genome sequencing or genetic testing, or even just like a blood test, you know, sometimes can be really helpful and help us to identify things. And the more that we engage with that kind of research, the more we're able to start finding usable therapeutics, you know, for patients who are affected. Are there any approved therapeutics for, for folks who are affected by the syndrome? Is there anything specific to their potential epilepsies or other 
sort of condition related issues that they might have? A lot of our uh, patients, people diagnosed with NCBRS do have epilepsy. So it's just a case of managing that with your epilepsy doctor. It's a topic that comes up a lot in terms of, like a lot of people will say for XYZ condition, we don't have any approved therapies. We don't. So like, and and it's, it's difficult. Now, some may not necessarily need specific targeted therapies, mm-hmm. although I can tell you listening to people like in the industry who are working on these things, they're starting to get to a point where they're they're finding ways to maybe gene edit or use gene editing to prevent a lot of the symptoms. This is where our research is hopefully going to end up leading to, um, because since the gene was identified in 2012, there hasn't really been any research done on the condition since then. So that is one of our main goals going forward, and also carrying on the support, education and awareness for the families, the carers, professionals who support them. Wow, that that wow. I I love that. I love the the support. I mean, obviously all of our communities need support. So all the support that we can give is amazing. So thank you for taking your time. I mean, you're a parent with a child, but at the same time you're taking you've chosen to step up and to do this because at a young age you didn't want anyone to go through that similar sense of being alone and being sort of adrift. And I think all of us have felt like that at some point. Um whether we're parents or patients, we've felt like what is this? How is it going to affect the rest of my life? Is this going to give me a shorter lifespan? Um, do, are there any drugs that I can take? Like, what are my options? Can I get physical therapy? Can I, you know, who do I see? So we are often adrift in like a sea of either information or a lack of information. Mm-hmm. So when people step up and say, I'm going to be a leader in this condition, I'm going to give good information, I'm going to provide support and help organize support. So if you know, you don't have to be up at midnight answering, you know, DMs, although I'm, sh- I'm sure you probably do <laughs> hear you there, yeah. but organizing folks to help support you so that they can all support this community. So, you know, we always need more support and we always need more people to stand up and be leaders. And it's not easy. I can't imagine it was easy at 19 years old. My gosh, that is yes. so young. Yes. When I was 19, I was, well, dyeing my hair pink, but, um, <laughs> I wasn't doing much of anything. I volunteered, but like nothing to do with any of this, you know, health or anything. And I thought I'm a reasonably healthy person, kind of. None of this is ever going to affect me. And I remember even saying that when I was 19, that nothing like this will ever affect me. How wrong was I? (laughs) I think that's exactly it's true for all of us, I think, at some point. So just thank you from that perspective of standing up and saying, I'm going to be the person who's going to do this because not everybody does. So thank you for that. I really appreciate that. And I'm sure the families appreciate it even more than I do (laughs) because I'm (laughs) not directly involved. As we're closing, is there anyone else besides Helen that you'd like to give a shout out to? Obviously, I will say Helen Robinson again. She she has always been my backup, the driving force behind me getting things done as well. But obviously, Helen did step down last year. That was a shame, but... We have got a new chair of trustees now, um, Nuala Ryan. She's been in the role since April um, and she is just amazing. She is doing great things. Um, she, she She's really trying to push the research forward. So that's another good thing. Um, I'm going to give a big shout, shout out to a parent in the USA whose name is Jenna. She actually helped us with updating our website and our logos and all our graphics and everything like that. So a 
big shout out to her and just my other trustee whose name is Lara she's in Australia um, she's just amazing she, she, she connects all the families together she keeps our family list up to date um, so yeah I, I, I do get a lot of help it's not just me on my own so I must say I, I do get some great support from other families around the world as well so to all the folks that Lee just mentioned, I would also like to to say thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing because it matters. And I think unless you're in this space, you don't think about it, but it matters. We need you. It is not an easy job to do website, social media, yada, 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 et cetera, on, in, on to infinity. So thank you to Jenna and thank you to Helen and thank you to everyone that Lee just mentioned. We appreciate you. So we before do. we go, do you have any social media or any other uh, things that you just want to shout out real quick? So you can follow us on our social media. So if you just search NCBRS, it will pop up and you will find us. Um, our website address is just NCBRS brs.com that will take you to there and you can reach out to us anytime by email at contact us at ncbrs.com thanks for listening to this week's episode of signalize a dazzle for Air podcast to stay up to date on the podcast and dazzle for Air, follow us on facebook instagram and twitter at d-a-z-z-l-e the number four rare r-a-r-e and finally if you liked this episode share it with a friend and tag us on social media platforms.